Church. Uh, the sermon text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 11 to 18. So I'll invite you to uh, flip there. One John chapter three, verse eleven. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of God. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your loving kindness you have given us your word. For your word is the word of life. May your spirit be with us today. That we may just catch a glimpse of the love that you have for us. Let your spirit will fill us with joy and thankfulness and drive us to love one another. We thank you for church, for where you have placed us. We find it remarkable that you would choose flawed people like us to be the caretakers of your gospel and to demonstrate your love to the world. We see the enormity of that mission and we often despair and fear as we see the brokenness of this world. But we know that you continue to reign and remain sovereign and you remain in control. So we need not fear. Father, be with us now as we come to your word, that your spirit may be at work. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, Love. It is one of those words that is so commonplace in our everyday lingo that whenever it is used, almost everyone has an idea of what it means. I remember that even for my kids before the age of two, when I told them that I loved them, that they would smile and would even say back, I love you, even though I've never explicitly taught them what love means. But the beam that often radiates across their face reveals that they do grasp its meaning in some way. 
Children learn language by subconsciously connecting what they hear with what they experience at that point in time. A smile, a kiss, a hug, the warm fuzzy feelings and a sense of safety that comes whenever the words I love you is uttered helps them to learn about what love is. Yet, the often unspoken and undefined nature of this word lends itself to evolve, to be redefined, misused, or misinterpreted. Love is so experiential, there is strong emotional elements to it. When the word love is uttered, all the baggage that you carry can be brought to the fore, whether that is a positive experience or one of weariness, hesitation, disappointments, or even trauma. Love is then often used interchangeably with romance, infatuation, lust, desire, strong feelings, or even a fleeting positive emotion. Even in the Christian sphere, the theology of love has a lot of baggage. I remember earlier in my Christian walk, I was at a church where evangelism is done by passing out tracts to strangers while saying, Jesus loves you. Or doing something kind and nice to unbelievers and saying, Jesus loves you. Some would say, love is the gospel. And what this all means is assumed and remains undefined. Then at some stage, I was in a church where at least some people expressed concerns regarding all this talk of Jesus' love. They thought it was unhelpful. We should be emphasizing God's holiness in evangelism. God's hatred of sin and judgment that befalls those who do not repent. And there was a weariness towards speaking of God's love in case it made people feel, uncomf- feel, feel comfortable in their own sin. For some reason, love has become controversial. And we can carry all this baggage when we come to the Bible and read all these passages on love. And yet, love is such a major aspect of Christian theology and practice. In the famous passage on love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, But have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The author of this letter we are looking at today, the Apostle John, spoke so much of God's love and the love of Christ that he is colloquially known as the Apostle of Love. And in our text today, he begins... One of the main themes of this letter, 1 John, love for the people of God. He'll come back to this theme again and again for the rest of the book. And leading up to our text for today, in chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3, John wrote to the church to address the issue of false teachers that have ravaged this church and caused a church split. He calls them false teachers and antichrists, And John gives this church, struggling with doubt and uncertainty, two litmus tests to discern between true believers 
and false teachers. Firstly, in chapter 2, verse 22, a, a test of doctrine. These false teachers deny that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh. This is doctrinal falsehood. This is probably what us as reformer Christians are keenly aware of. We love our theology and our doctrine. We know there are teachers who preach a different Christ, a different gospel, and we are not hesitant to call out these false teachers. But then John gives this church a second litmus test. In chapter 3, verse 8, these false teachers make a practice, uh, he says that these false teachers make a practice of sinning. They continue in sin without their consciences being seared. They are unrepentant. In essence, this is a moral falsehood. We often like to make neat little divisions between what a person proclaims or what they believe versus how they live their lives. I gave the example last time of agreeing with a politician's policies on many things and agreeing with what they say, but disagreeing with how they've conducted their lives. But John doesn't allow us to do this for Bible teachers. A person is not a genuine Bible teacher if what they proclaim sounds right and true, but they are not characterized by continual repentance from sin and continual striving to do good. So John's teachings about how to discern between true believers and false teachers lead us up to our text for today. And John uses this teaching about false teachers to springboard onto an exhortation or an appeal for us to love one another. So I have broken this text up into three sections. One, Christians love Christians. And two, why Christians love Christians. And three, how Christians love Christians. So firstly, Christians love Christians. Let's read verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Earlier in the series, I mentioned that the letter of 1 John is very heavy on indicatives, that is, describing what is, and very light on imperatives, which, is, which just means that what we are uh, told that we are ought to do. And when we read verse 11 in isolation, you might think that this is an imperative, that we should love one another. But it's important to pay attention to that first word in verse 11, for. This word being here shows that he is continuing some prior thoughts that were unfinished. So it's important to go back to what he has been saying and read this in context. So back to verse 10, and summing up his second litmus test for false teachers, John says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, John is continuing in his arguments and warning about false teachers. He is saying, this is a message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And because a Bible teacher who does not love 
Therefore, he is not of God. John includes the act of love as part of his moral test for Bible teachers. And once again, just like he did with the first litmus test of doctrine, he points them back to what he taught them at the very beginning. Verse 11 is an indicative. He is reminding the church of what he taught them, that Christians are to love one another. Christians love Christians. So if someone claiming to be a teacher of God's word, yet his life does not exude a love for Christ's church, you should be very, very wary of them. They have abandoned their roots. They have abandoned their Christian roots. This is potentially a greater danger for us today than for the, at the time when John is writing. We live in a period in history that is unprecedented in terms of the amount of information that is out there due to the ease with which people, anyone, can put up any information onto the internet for anyone else to consume. How many times have you come across internet theologians or Bible teachers that aren't actually connected to a church? In our increasingly polarized political climate, there are people claiming a Christian identity, speaking on cultural issues or uh, from a supposedly biblical perspective on YouTube, blogs, or podcasts. But they exude an air of cynicism, anger, hatred, controversy. I came across one this week on a, a person claiming to run a Christian YouTube channel, engaging in cultural debates and dialogue, but his Twitter feed is littered with mockery of people he disagreed with, and at one stage even used crass language against churches and Christians and what he perceived to be cowardice on speaking to cultural issues. Be very, very wary of these people. Even if what they say is true, it is very likely that they are false teachers. And John continues in verse 12, We should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. In one of my earlier sermons, um, I mentioned that one of the main messages that John says to this church back in chapter 1 was that God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. You either belong in the light or you belong in darkness. There is no overlap. They do not mix. They are mutually exclusive. There are no shades of gray or dim lighting. They are opposed to each other. John here then expands on, on that, that the light is characterized by love, and the world, the domain of darkness, is opposed to that light, so is opposed to love, opposed to those who are in the light. And if you've been part of a church for any significant length of time, you would have experienced people coming and going, either voluntarily or forced out. Some leave on good terms with good reasons, and others not so much. In the situation that John is writing into, this church split 
did not happen on good terms. There was likely significant open dispute, proclamations of judgment and condemnations between two parties. If anyone has ever read the page turner, that is the Trinity Reformed Baptist Church Constitution, rated five out of five on Goodreads, you would see that the hope of church discipline should be not kicking someone out, but repentance and restoration. And so an ongoing disdain towards the church, as John says, is in fact further evidence that the person departing is not a Christian. It is further evidence that they belong in the domain of darkness. Why? Because Christians have been brought into the light, a light filled with love, so Christians love Christians. Now, before I move on to the next verses, it's important to make a distinction. And and this distinction is my second point, why Christians love Christians. And this distinction, while on the surface may seem a bit pedantic, because from an outward moral perspective, it may look the same. But understanding the difference is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. Now, in the next few verses, John is about to tie a person standing before God very closely with love. In fact, throughout the rest of the book of 1 John, he will do this regularly. And before we get there, I want you to be conscious to read closely what John says and answer this question. Why do Christians love Christians? I'll give you a multi-choice response. So, A, do you love so that you will pass out of death into life? Or B, do you love to prove that you have passed out of death into life? C, do you love because you have passed out of, uh, or do you love because you have passed out of death into life? So A, do you love so that you will pass out of death into life? Or B, do you love to prove that you have passed out of death into life? Or C, do you love because you have passed out of death into life? Or D, all of the above. Um, And as should always be the case when you're not sure in a multi-choice exam, so it's a pro tip here, you narrow down your options. Let's read what John says in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. John is saying, we have been saved, past tense, because we love the brothers. So that rules out option number A. We, we, uh, option A, we have already passed out of death into life. It's not something we earn through love. Our salvation is not earned through love. We do not love so that we will pass 
out of death into life, we have already passed out of death into life. And this works on the other side of a coin too. It is not that people do not love, that's why they abide in death. It is because they are presently in the domain of darkness, and that's why they hate the light. Verse 14 makes it clear that love of Christians is evidence or fruit that we have passed out of death into life. So if love of Christians is evidence or fruit that we have passed out of death into life, that kind of still leaves options B and C. So B, do you love to prove that you have passed out of death into life? Or C, do you love because you have passed out of death into life? Both seems possible from the plain reading of verse 14. But verse 16, if we keep going, will make it clear for us. Let's read. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What does John here ground our motivation to love in? It is not to prove that we have been loved, but that we have been loved. To use an analogy, why do you wash your hands? Is it to prove that you are hygienic? Or is it because you are hygienic? Or why do you brush your teeth? Is it to prove that you take good care of your teeth? Or is it because you want to take good care of your teeth? So do you be love in order to prove that you have passed out of death into life? Or do you love because you have passed out of death into life? Verse 16 makes it clear. Christians love Christians because we have been loved. The answer is C. It's always C. We love Christians because we have passed out of death into life. Then that leaves the question, how are Christians to love Christians? Verse 16 tells us that we are to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in the same way that Christ has laid down his life for us. We are to love sacrificially because Christ has loved us sacrificially. We are all, in a way, like little children. We all learn how to love through our experience of love and through the environment around us, you know, for better or for worse. We may have experienced love from our parents and our families, between friends, our communities, our culture, or even by identifying with a protagonist in books and movies. And because of this, it is very often that we internalize flawed ideas of love. We may love only when it is convenient or when it makes us feel good. 
Maybe we have internalized the love in a messy marriage, either of our own or, uh, or of our parents or of, of our friends, where there, there can be a lack of trust, where there is judge, judgment and harshness rather than safety, where flaws are hidden and swept under the carpet. And we can bring all this baggage into church and into our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we, we love when it's convenient. So we love those that are easy to love, who are on the surface similar to us. And we may also think that maybe we need to hide our flaws and have it all together in order to be loved. But John tells us we are to learn to love but by looking at how Jesus loved. Jesus loved disciples who were very, very flawed. They spent three years with him, yet still did not really understand why he was here. Jesus loved sinners with messy lives, those who stole, those who were corrupt, prostitutes. Jesus loved doubters, those with questions, those who cry, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Those who ask, what must I do to be saved? Jesus loved the sick and the poor, those that society has given up on and cast aside, those with nothing to offer the world, those that cannot serve him or help him. Jesus loved his enemies as he unjustly hung, dying on the cross. When a normal person would be filled with anger, bitterness, or regret, he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus loved them more tenderly and sacrificially. He strengthened the weak, the anxious, and the fearful. He mourned with those who mourned. He gave up the comforts of heaven to be with us. He gave up his time, his energy, and his resources to teach us, to serve us, to heal us, to live for us, to love for us, to love perfectly for us. And ultimately, he gave up his life because he loved us. Because he loved us you because he loved the person sitting next to you jesus did not pay simply pay lip service to love like our culture often does like we so often do but he actually loved he gave up everything in love if you are not a believer here today I hope you can catch a glimpse of Jesus' love. All the baggage you may carry from all your relationships, all your disappointments with love, Jesus offers his love that surpasses all loves. His love will not disappoint. He invites you to come to know him now. Not when you feel more moral or clean or righteous. He invites you to come as you are and accept his love to be made clean, not just to feel clean, but to actually be clean. If you are a believer here today, Jesus gave up everything in love 
And that is how the church is called to love. That is Jesus' vision for the church. Let us be stirred to love because Jesus has loved us. Let us be stirred to love our brothers and sisters in Christ because your beloved Savior has loved them as he has loved you. He loves you despite all your flaws, all your sin, all your arrogance, all your weakness, and all your bad decisions. Remind yourself every day how Jesus has loved, and let yourself be comforted and rejoice in that love. Let yourself experience that love. And then, dear church, love your brothers and sisters in Christ through all their sin, all their arrogance, all their weakness, and all their bad decisions. Love them when it's not easy to love. Love them when it's awkward to love. Love them when it's uncomfortable to love. Love them when they offend you and when they say something stupid. Love them when they're needy. Love them when it takes time, energy, and resources. Love them because Christ has loved us. Jesus said, just before he was taken away to be killed, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The church where you are right now, amongst other believers, is the special place that God carved out to show to the world what true love really is. So let's show them. Let's show them the love of Christ. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love. May you bring to our minds the gospel of your love when it feels dark and when our sin feels overwhelming. We thank you that your blood covers all our sins. We thank you that you loved us when we were your enemies and despite how unlovable we are. May we grow in our knowledge of your love and learn to love one another as you have loved us. We pray that we would not shy from confessing our sins and bearing with one another's burdens. Grant us the compassion and the patience that you have shown us that we may do the same for those you have placed in our church family. We pray that you would draw us back again and again to the cross when we get discouraged, that we may draw strength and encouragement, knowing more how we have been saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.